Good morning. As you can see on the screen, there are four points today. Uh-oh, usually there's only three, so we're, we're in for it today. Um, well, open up in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. Picking up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. If you were here with us last week, or if you watched online, uh, you recall that last week Jesus asked his disciples a question, uh, who do you say that I am? And um, Peter made a wonderful confession. Right, this question that is vital to our relationship with Jesus Christ, who do you say I am? And Peter gives this wonderful answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just a good teacher, not just a religious leader, not a revolutionary. He said, you are God's chosen one, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. And we stopped there at the end of that confession. We talked about how the way we answer that question, who do you say Jesus is, is a vitally important one. And now this morning as we continue on in Matthew chapter 16, we will look at Jesus' response to Peter. Jesus' response to Peter. Um, Jesus' response really is centered on the church. Centered on the church. We'll be in verses uh, 17 through 20 today, and we will see four key aspects of the church of Jesus Christ. It's divine doctrine and its apostolic foundation, its triumphant victory, and its spiritual ministry. Ultimately, what Jesus will teach us this morning uh, reveals that his plan of redemption is focused on the church as a whole. Our, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ is important, but it's part of the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing in his church, both in its local and global form. And in a, in a day when people want to redefine the biblical teaching on the role of the church, uh, the nature of the church, the purpose of the church, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 16 continues 2,000 years later to be relevant and essential for us to hear. Let's read verses 17 through 20. Well, you know what, I'll go ahead and back up to 13 so we can kind of pick up where we left off. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the scriptures, that we can open them up and hear what you have to say. We thank you that your word is timeless, and Lord, that Jesus' words are just as important for us to hear as they were for the disciples to hear on that day 2,000 years ago. And Lord, I pray that you would give us an understanding of the importance of the church. 
that we would value the church like Jesus does. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to explain your word clearly and faithfully in a way that honors you and that exalts Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. Four key aspects of the church. It's divine doctrine, it's apostolic foundation, it's triumphant victory, and it's spiritual ministry. And as we saw last week, and as we read a moment ago, Jesus identifies, or Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we look at 17 in our text this morning, we see Jesus' response to Peter's confession. Uh, and, and Jesus not only approves of Peter's confession, but in his response to Peter reveals the source of Christian doctrine. Now Jesus first declares, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. In light of this confession, you are blessed. This is, this is Peter's Hebrew name, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus says, you are blessed in light of this confession. But then he goes on to explain why and how Peter is blessed. And he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now this clarifies something important to us. Now, Peter has not identified Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior of the world, because he's particularly wise. Now, Peter does not have... Uh, more advantage or more spiritual insight than anybody else. Peter is not uh, a man of extraordinary reason or natural abilities that allow him to identify who Jesus is. Right? There is nothing unique about Peter himself. Peter doesn't have a spiritual upper hand compared to the rest of the disciples in and, him, in and of himself. Right? He's just like you and I. Jesus is clear. Peter's Doctrine, his confession of who Jesus is, is not from flesh and blood. It's not because Peter came up with it by himself. No, instead it is something that God, the Father in heaven, revealed to Peter. Peter is blessed then because God has revealed the truth about Jesus to him. Now think about this for a second. What's the question Jesus asks in verse 13, who do the crowds say I am? Who do people say I am? And the people had many guesses. Elijah, John the Baptist, the prophets. But were these correct? They were not. They were not. These were the wrong answers about who Jesus was. God had not revealed to the crowds the true identity of Jesus in the same way he did to Peter. There's a reason why their answers are different. And the only real explanation here is the sovereign and gracious work of God who reveals Christ by the Spirit to whoever he wills. Now, Peter's doctrine, you see, his, his understanding of who Jesus is comes about not by his own opinion, but by divine revelation. I, and, and this is true for the church. This is true for the church of Jesus Christ. Our doctrine, what we believe, our understanding about who God is, what Jesus has done, it must not come from flesh and blood. It must not come from our own opinions on the matter, our own thoughts, but from divine revelation. But where do we get that? Where do we get divine revelation? How do we know what God has said? Do we need to have a dream? Do we need to go talk to a prophet? No, we have God's fully perfect and inspired revelation here in his written word. On this side of the completed canon of Scripture, the source of God's revelation is the Bible. 
It's the Bible, the divinely inspired scriptures. We don't depend on human opinions as Christians. We don't depend on reasoning to give us information about God. We don't go with somebody's best guess, right? Because we've been given the scriptures. We've been given authoritative divine revelation as the source of our doctrine, just like Peter was as he makes this confession. And in fact, the apostle Peter himself, the same figure we're looking at in our text today, would write about this very thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. See, God used human authors to write the words that he desired to be written. The, the human authors, Isaiah, Peter, David, Moses, Matthew, they wrote in their own language, they wrote in their own personality, and in their own style, but God used all these things, carrying them along by the Spirit, so that every single word they wrote would be exactly what God intended it to be. That's divinely given information. Just like how Peter's confession, you are the Christ, didn't come from his own independent opinion, but Spirit revealed truth, the writings of Scripture are not based on human will or opinion or interpretation, but on the will of God expressed through the Holy Spirit. And when you read the Bible from beginning to end, you realize it is not like any other book that's ever been written. It's not like any other sacred text. The Bible is 66 books compiled together, written over thousands of years, and yet they are unified. Human beings can't pull that off. Right? There is one divine author of the scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3, you can turn there if you'd like. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is even more clear about the source of the church's doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. These may be well-known verses to you, but they are always good to hear. All Scripture is breathed out by God, right? It comes from God, from His very mouth, so to speak. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, or woman of God, of course, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So where do we turn to as the people of God, whether here or at any local church in the world? We turn to the scriptures. That's the source of our doctrine. All throughout Scripture, there's references to the importance of God's revelation, written down and recorded in space and time by man's hand, but ultimately breathed out by God himself. God's people, going all the way back to the, 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 the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, have been given the deposit of divine truth, revealed from God himself. And we have such a benefit today because we have the fully completed Scriptures. We have all of the books, all of the letters that God intended for us to have. That's a wonderful thing, a rich treasure. And, and the church and its leaders, the apostles, ministers, are responsible for upholding and proclaiming the truth of Scripture without compromise. This is where we get it from. I'm not going to stand in the pulpit and read to you from a newspaper, right, as a source of divine doctrine, but from Scripture. That's where we turn to. 
And in the early days of its history, the church was uh, given apostles as stewards of doctrine. And it's now to the apostolic foundation of the church that we turn in verse 18 of our text, Matthew 16. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. Now the church is not a modern invention. It, it didn't begin a hundred years ago. As we look at verse 18, we see that the church has been Jesus' plan and project for thousands of years. We could even say before the foundation of the world. And Jesus makes a very emphatic statement in verse 18. He says, I tell you. And when you see that, right, uh, you know, that's very important. I tell you. That means pay attention, listen. In the Greek, it's even more emphatic. Jesus is saying, I, me, I tell you this. He's making a proclamation here to Peter with his full authority behind it. And, and when we consider what Jesus is talking about, it would make sense. He speaks so forcefully. He's talking about his church. And he says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What does that mean, right? We need to unpack this a little bit. And our, our text this morning really contains a number of verses that are, that are controversial, that are highly debated. So we need to spend a little time understanding them. What does it mean that Jesus will build his church on this rock? And what does Peter have to do with it? Well, we might think that, that perhaps Peter's being renamed here when Jesus says to him, you are Peter. But that's not actually the case. Jesus called Simon Peter all the way back when they first met in John 1. Now, Peter has been Peter's nickname for some time now. But here in Matthew 16, Jesus is actually now explaining the meaning behind it. Uh, we, we could say that he's revealing to Peter why he has this nickname. Now, the Greek form of Peter's name is Petros, Petros, which means rock, right? We get our English word petrified from this word, right, meaning turned to rock. Now, Peter's name then means rock, right? That's what the nickname means, rock, solid ground. And we see Jesus do a little play on words here in verse 18. He says, you are rock, you are Peter, you are rock, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It's practically the same word in the Greek. But as I mentioned a moment ago, this, this word play has actually been the source of a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy. And really the question is, what is the rock Jesus is talking about? What is he building his church on here? Now the grammar of the passage doesn't really tell us, so we have to go with context. And there's two main possibilities that uh, Christians have kind of landed on regarding this verse throughout history. Um, one option is that Jesus is building his church on Peter, that Peter's the rock, Jesus is building his church on Peter. The other possibility is that Peter's confession is the rock, and Jesus will build his church based on the truth of that confession. Um, historically, the Catholic Church has taken the first option, um, and they go so far as to say that this means Peter is the Pope, right? And Jesus built his church on, on Peter, the, the first Pope. Now, Protestants, in reaction to the Catholic interpretation, have tried to avoid making any connections to Peter whatsoever, and have claimed that the rock is the gospel message, right? It's Peter's profession. So what do we do with this? What's the best and most natural understanding of this verse? I think it's a mix of both. The immediate context, Jesus' play on words, seems to make pretty clear that Peter's the rock. 
right? Peter's the rock. You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church, right? That's, that's kind of the natural sense of the text here. But at the same time, Peter is the rock because of his confession. He's the rock because of his confession, and his confession leads to his role as the leader of the rest of the apostles. As one commentator says, uh, is the recipient of what's been revealed by the Father, and as he here takes the lead in the profession of faith, and later in the propagation of the faith, Peter becomes the foundation stone for the church. Now, we can say that Peter is the rock without making him the pope. Right? There's nothing here in the text that requires that Peter be the pope, and as Protestants, we just reject that outright. Um, but at the same time, historically, we, we can acknowledge Peter had a pretty unique role in the early church. He wasn't perfect, he wasn't infallible, but he was the leader of the apostles. For example, you might recall at the end of John's Gospel, on the beach, on the shore of Galilee, after the risen Christ has come to them, who is it that Jesus takes aside and says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep? It's Peter. It's Peter. Who was it that we see leading the church to select a new apostle to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1? It's Peter. Who is it that's preaching on Pentecost, bringing in 3,000 souls to the church? It's Peter. Uh, who is it who spoke to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 3 and who dealt with the lying of Ananias and Sapphira in the church in Acts 5? It's Peter. Who did God give a vision to at Cornelius' house that, that revealed all foods were now clean for the Jewish people and really all peoples were now clean through Christ? It was Peter. Who played a major leadership role in the Jerusalem council in Acts 15? It's Peter. It's Peter, right? The simple fact is that Jesus commissioned Peter to a unique leadership role in the early days of the church, using him to spread the gospel and shepherd those early believers. Right, so we can say, yeah, Peter's the rock. Peter's the rock. But again, none of this means Peter's the pope. And in fact, in Acts chapter 15, we see James having more authority than Peter. In Galatians 2, Paul describes how he rebuked Peter for showing partiality to the Jews over the Gentiles in the church. So Peter does not occupy a unique role outside of his role as an apostle. He's not infallible. Right? He's not the Pope, but he does play a unique role. But really, Peter's role as an apostle kind of extends to the rest of the apostles as well. Jesus' words here extend beyond Peter to all of the apostles who form the apostolic foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 describes how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 21, the, the New Jerusalem which is a, a, a symbolic picture of the church throughout the ages, is said to have 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. But see, the apostles do form a sort of foundation for the rest of the church. And the church is built on the labors of the apostles as they establish the early church. It's, it's built on their doctrine, their teaching, as they elaborated on the work of Jesus Christ, on who he was. And when we look at the New Testament, who are the majority of the authors? It's the apostles, right? It's the apostles. The vast majority of the New Testament writers that we still read today, right, as we still um, receive that teaching and that truth, as we build on that foundation, they're the apostles. They're the apostles. So Jesus, through history, right, laid an apostolic foundation. We see it in Scripture, right? We read their letters, their writings. We learn from them as they revealed God's truth. And we're continuing to build on that foundation. But it's important to note as well, the apostles do not own the church. 
They don't have ultimate authority over the church. Jesus is very clear in verse 18. He will build His church. It belongs to Him. He's the head of the church. He's the cornerstone. Now, it's probably helpful at this point to define what the church is. right? We, we kind of take that word for granted a little bit. And we tend to think about, in, in our day and age, the church being a building right, or an institution or, or kind of this entity. Uh, but the Greek word here is ekklesia. And really all that means is an assembly, a group of called out ones. So Jesus' church then is not an institution. It's not a business. It's, it's not a, a corporation. It's his covenant people. It's his people, right? It's a group of human beings that are purchased by Christ through his death on the cross and who are united to him by faith and by the Spirit. That's what the church is. It's people. It's people. And this definition of the church reflects Jesus' claim to own the church and Jesus' promise to build the church in verse 18. Right? Jesus promises to build and strengthen his church, his people, upon the foundational doctrine and ministry that his apostles carried out. Uh, but here's what's wonderful. Even though Jesus said these words 2,000 years ago, he continues to build his church today. He's continuing to bring in men and women and children by faith into his assembly, into his kingdom, all around the world. That's amazing. That's incredible. Christianity has only increased throughout time as Jesus has continued to build his church. As people hear this message that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he came to die for sinners, and when sinners believe in Christ, they are reconciled to God. That message is what Jesus has been using to build his church. And as we consider that Jesus is continuing to build his church today, um, I think that there's a great encouragement for us. And maybe even a helpful course correction. It's a very great encouragement for us that Jesus is the one building his church, not us. Jesus is building the church, not us. This is a promise Jesus makes. He will build his church. He is the one that ensures it grows and has spiritual life. He is the one that lights and removes the lampstands of the church. He is the one that's building his church in every nation. He's the only one that has the power and authority to do that. We can't do that. Right? We don't have that. We don't have that responsibility, that power, that authority. And if we were responsible for building the church, we'd be in big trouble. Right? We'd be in big trouble. We, we are sinners. Right? If, if Jesus is putting the steering wheel in our hands, we're going to crash that car really fast. Right? He is the only one who's able to build his church the right way. That's a comfort to me. But at the same time, it's also a great reminder that we get to still participate in Jesus' work of building the church. Right? We're, not, we're not the audience, we're not the spectators. Right? Jesus actually invites us and calls us to be involved as he builds his church. And, and there's several ways we do this. Curtis read this morning from Ephesians 4. One of the ways we help build the church up is by truthfully loving our brothers and sisters. Uh, again, those the verses Curtis read, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And, and that when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. All right, we help participate in building the church as we love one another truthfully. We also help in building the church 
uh, as we serve with the gifts God gives each one of us. Now, God's given each Christian uh, unique spiritual gifts that differ, right? We don't all have the same gifts, and that's a good thing. And he gives us these gifts so that we might serve each other in the church, that we might strengthen each other, right? And, and while we are not the ones actually building up the church, that's Jesus' job, he calls us to work with him as we serve in encouragement or hospitality or teaching or zeal or giving or uh, whatever it may be. And we get to help Jesus build the church that way. Jesus' promise to build the church is also a helpful course correction uh, to us, right? When we remember how Jesus builds his church. Now, Jesus has not promised to build his church through taking care of social needs, though those are, those are good things, right? Those are worthy pursuits. But he has not promised to build his church through really well-produced church services. He has not promised to build his church through church growth strategies. He's not promised to build his church through really great technology. All these things may bring people into a church building, but none of them are what Jesus has promised to use to build his church. Jesus' formula for building the church isn't complicated. It's actually very, very simple, and in many ways it's very ordinary. We worship him in the ways he's commanded. We preach the gospel. We pursue discipleship. It's very simple. Right? It's very simple, almost deceptively so. But that's how Jesus builds the church. And uh, trust me, we won't have better ideas than Jesus. And as Jesus continues speaking of his church, we see him in the next part of verse 18 describe the triumphant victory of the church. The triumphant victory of the church. Jesus makes a promise here, uh, not just to build his church, but he goes on to say, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, and this is one of those controversial verses, right? One of those controversial verses. Some take the view that, that the church will go on the offense and defeat Satan, right? The church is banging on the gates of hell, and they're, they're going to break down before the church. Others take the view that the church will survive all of Satan's attacks and be left standing. Um, that the church defensively will be triumphant. Um, but the problem with both of these views is that they're, they're kind of based on a mistranslation. When, when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, the Greek word he uses here is different than what we might expect. You may have a little note in your Bible there. Now normally, Jesus uses the word Gehenna for hell, right? describing a place of fiery, eternal torment. But here Jesus uses a different Greek word. He uses the word Hades. Hades. Uh, Hades is not the same as hell. Right? When we think of hell, we think of uh, the place where unrepentant sinners go when they die under the judgment of God. That's not what Hades is. Hades is, is basically the same thing as Sheol in the Old Testament. It's the realm of the dead. Just generally speaking, the realm of the dead. It's the place where everybody would go whether wicked or righteous, prior to the resurrection of Christ. It's just the place of the dead. And Sheol, or Hades, the place of the dead, is often described in the Old Testament as having gates or doors on them. Uh, the kids are learning about King Hezekiah today. And, and, and when King Hezekiah was sick, in Isaiah 38, he said, In the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. Or King David asked God in Psalm 9, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up to the gates of death. 
Psalm 107.18 describes how the people of Israel drew near to the gates of death. Right? So we see actually Jesus is kind of making an Old Testament reference here. He's describing the gates in the realm of the dead. Uh, it doesn't refer to Satan's domain or his authority, which is often confused with hell, but no. Uh, Jesus doesn't seem to be saying that the church is going to wage war on Satan here or that Satan will wage war on the church, though that's true. That's just not what this text is saying. Here, the realm of the dead, Jesus seems to be saying that the powers of death will not prevail against the church. The gates of the realm of the dead, right? The gates of death will not prevail against Jesus' people. In other words, Jesus' people, his church, will not remain stuck behind those gates, dead forever, but through his resurrection, Jesus will bring them out and give them eternal life through the gospel and his resurrection. It's Jesus who, who in 2 Timothy chapter 1.10, has abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. It's Jesus in Revelation 1.18 who has died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's Jesus who in 1 Corinthians 15 will destroy the last enemy, which is death. So ultimately what Jesus is saying here, what he's referring to is that the gates of Hades, the gates of death that have swallowed up all people throughout history. Nobody escapes death. Nobody escapes death. But that those gates will not be able to keep his people, his church, locked in. Death will not have the last word for Jesus' church. Instead, Jesus comes, breaks open the gates of death, right? Kicks down the door, leads forth his people to eternal resurrection life. And so through the triumphant victory of Jesus, the church will be triumphant too. That's wonderful news, isn't it? Wonderful news. And certainly, can we say that the church will prevail over Satan? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Satan is not stronger than death. And Jesus has defeated death already. And so here we look forward to the future hope of the church, the triumphant victory over death that Jesus promises. But even though this verse looks forward to the future victory of the church, Jesus in verse 19 also speaks of the present responsibility and spiritual ministry of the church in verse 19. In verse 19. This is another controversial verse here. As Jesus declares to Peter, he'll give him the keys to the kingdom and talks about binding and loosing. What do these words mean, right? What does this verse mean? Let's start with what the keys of the kingdom are. What the keys of the kingdom are. Now, if we were to look at this again in the Greek, and this is just one of those passages where we have to talk about the Greek. Normally, we try not to talk about it so much, but you guys will all be Greek scholars by the time we get out of here today. Um, but in the Greek, Jesus is speaking in, in the singular. He's saying, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He's just talking to one person, right? And, and again, this is another text the Catholic Church has appealed to in order to portray Peter as the Pope. But... If we were to look at Matthew 18, we'd find very similar language in the plural, where Jesus speaks to all of the apostles and really the entire church. So while Peter's the main focus here in verse 19, he's not the exclusive focus. Now, in the ancient world, keys to a kingdom or a house or a palace would be given to a steward. To a steward. We don't really have stewards today, but a steward was not the owner of the house. 
he was kind of the manager of the house. He had been given authority and responsibility by the master of the house. He was supposed to take care of things in there and, and, and keep order. Um, but he was not the owner of the house himself. Yet those keys demonstrated his responsibility. In effect, Jesus is telling Peter that in light of your confession, Peter, you are being given keys to the kingdom. You are being given authority and responsibility to be a steward in the kingdom of heaven. This is part of the ministry of the apostles, to be stewards of the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's what the keys represent. And, and this stewardship continues through the ministry of, of elders in the local church today. We see this in the New Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 2. You can turn there, just a couple books over. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, describes himself as an apostle with this sort of terminology. He speaks of the apostolic ministry this way. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And in the same way, Titus 1.7 describes elders who are not apostles as God's stewards. So the keys to the kingdom of heaven then describe the, the delegated responsibility and authority that Jesus gave to the apostles and and later to the elders of the church in two particular areas. Two areas, doctrine and discipline. Doctrine and discipline. The authority of, of the apostles, the authority of the church and church leaders goes no further than these two areas, doctrine and discipline. Uh, Matthew 18, which is a couple chapters away, deals with discipline, but here the context is on the key of doctrine. The key of doctrine. So what does a key do? It opens and closes. Right? It opens and closes. Uh, Peter the Apostles, ministers of the church, have a responsibility to open the door to the kingdom of heaven through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. Uh, Calvin writes, We know there's no other way in which the gate to life is opened to us than by the word of God. And hence it follows that the key is placed in the hands of the ministers of the word. So the nature of the church's work and ministry, the labor of ministers, of elders, is a profoundly spiritual one. There's a, there's a solemn and joyful responsibility to proclaim the gospel. To open up the doors of the kingdom of heaven through the words of eternal life. That's what the church is supposed to do. And this is connected to what Jesus means by binding and loosing. And this, this expression's also been kind of the victim of great misunderstanding, right? Uh, oftentimes you'll encounter people who think that this means binding and loosing demons. Right? That Christians have the authority to bind demons. And really, that's nowhere in the text at all. It's nowhere in Scripture. Um, the context of the text here is that binding and loosing deals with sins, with teaching. Now, now, given that we're considering the key of doctrine through the ministry of preaching, loosing refers to God's gracious work of loosing people from their sins as they believe in Jesus Christ, as they believe the gospel. When we come to Jesus and say, Lord, save me. I am a sinner. I have no hope but you. I believe who you are. I believe what you say. I believe you can save me. Save me, Lord. What happens when we have faith in Christ? Our sins are removed from us. The guilt of those sins is taken away as far as the east is from the west. They're thrown into the depths of the sea. They are untied from us and removed forever. 
As the ministers preach the word, God uses the gospel to free people from the guilt of their sins through faith in Christ. That's loosing, right? That's loosing. But what about binding? Well, there are those who hear the word, who hear about what Jesus has done, and they reject it. They reject the gospel. They reject the authority of Scripture's message. And what does that result in? Their sins being bound all the more tightly to them until they either repent or face God on Judgment Day. Sins being loosed, sins being bound, all in response to the ministry of the Word. Now, now Jesus' descriptions here have a very shocking strength to them, don't they? That, that Peter would be able to bind and loose things, and that that's reflected in heaven? It's shocking that Jesus would entrust the preaching of his word to human beings. That's a shocking thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. It's shocking that Jesus would place such authority behind the preaching of his word. It's shocking that the preaching of the word reflects the heavenly realities and judgment that preaching brings about. Right? For example, when a sinner hears the gospel and believes it, their sins are forgiven, and God in heaven declares their sins are forgiven. When a sinner rejects the word of God and refuses to repent, their sins are bound to them and God in heaven binds their sins to them and keeps them under judgment. And for this reason, because the preaching of the word is so powerful, because it carries such authority, the authority of Christ himself, ministers of the word are held to a high standard and will give account for their preaching to God himself how they represented him in their ministry. That is a sobering thought. So we see here what the primary ministry of the church is to be, the ministry of the word of God. That's why preaching takes up the center spot of our worship service. Because it's the ministry of the word of God that is the greatest task the church engages with. Right? The church's ministry is a spiritual one, dealing with the condition of human souls. It's not to be political, though the gospel has political implications. It's not to be culturally transformative, though the gospel has cultural implications. It's not primarily to fix social problems, though the gospel has social implications. The church's ministry, though, and responsibility is to preach the word of God. That the repentant will be loosed from their sins and that the unrepentant will be bound in them. We look briefly at verse 20. David asked me, I don't see it up there. Are you going to talk about that today? And I said, yeah, just real quick. But strangely, Jesus then tells his disciples very firmly, do not tell anyone I'm the Christ. Don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. I, I don't know about you, but I always get a little confused when Jesus says this. right? Because as Christians, we... we we think, well, are we supposed to tell everybody about Jesus? But then Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anybody who I am, right? Why wouldn't Jesus want people to know? Why wouldn't Jesus want his, his disciples to go out and tell others? Well, it could be because they don't really fully understand who Jesus is yet. Peter's made his confession, but Peter still has a lot to learn, right? Uh, it, it could be Jesus doesn't want them misrepresenting him. We're not really sure. Jesus doesn't tell us. Maybe it's because Jesus wants people to come to him based on faith, just by seeing him and understanding who he is. But it's hard to know. But in any case, Jesus is clear. Don't tell people I'm the Christ. Don't do it. 
But brothers and sisters, here's the thing. We don't have that same constraint on us. We don't have that same constraint on us. That was a unique little command for the disciples for a little, 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 little part of time. Jesus has not constrained us to keep his identity a secret. He's done the opposite, in fact. He, he doesn't give this command to us, be quiet about who I am. No, he says, go out and tell the world. Go out and tell many people that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of sinners. Make me known. And we are to proclaim divine doctrine as the church. We are to build upon the apostolic foundation of the church. We are to rejoice in the victory of Jesus for his church and to do the work of spiritual ministry. And all of this is to glorify Jesus Christ. Not to keep him a secret, but to make him known. And so friends, let, let me encourage you with something. If you come here regularly, if you attend here, um, you're part of the church. We're, we're, we're all part of the church, both locally and globally. But let me encourage you with this. All that we do is to make Jesus known. Who are you seeking to make Jesus known to? Who are you inviting to church to hear divine doctrine, to receive the ministry of the word, to have their sins loosed by faith? We get to participate with Jesus in building his church which means sometimes we need to go out and help look for living stones to build up that structure. So consider, my encouragement to you, consider who you may be able to invite to hear the word of God, to receive the spiritual ministry of the church that Christ might be made known to them. Right? This is our calling. This is our calling as a church. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you. Lord Jesus, you are head of the church, and we thank you that you are faithful to your church. Lord, that your love for us never fails or never fades, but that you have made a promise. And Father, we pray you would be helpful. Or, for, forgive me, Lord, that you would help us to be helpful and faithful in joining with Jesus to build his church, that we would be effective for his name's sake. And Lord, help us to consider who we might be able to bring to church. Or, Lord, perhaps simply to bring the gospel to, that we might be able to make Christ known to others outside these walls. There's so many in our area who, who don't know Jesus, but who need to know Jesus. So, Lord, burden our heart. Guide us in that, Lord, that we might join with you, Lord, in building up your body. We thank you and praise you for your faithfulness and power. In your name, amen.